You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim and I will be your host for today. We have a spectacular guest joining us. Let's say hi to Ren Kleiss. Ren, how are you today? I'm good. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Tim. No problem. Welcome. Everyone listening is most likely well aware of who Ren is, but for those who are for some reason in the dark, he's worked on the sound of some of my most beloved films. Pixar's Inside Out, Toy Story 4, the recently released Soul, which was amazing. Mr. Kleiss is possibly best known for his long and storied collaboration with David Fincher, starting with the all-time classic Seven and continuing through at least 12 films and series right up to their most recent collaboration in Mank. Mank takes place in 1930s at the height of the classic Hollywood studio system and follows our main character on his journey to write the script for Citizen Kane. But before we get to Mank, I have a bit of an origin story question for you, Ren. The start of your IMDb history is fascinating. Uh, your first credit listed in the sound department is for a short film, and then the next one is Seven, for which you are Oscar nominated. That's a pretty great start. All of your credits before that are actually for synth programming for music for Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross, Mariah Carey, Michael Bolton. Yes. How did you make the jump from, that's pretty high level in the music industry, working with those huge artists, over to uh, working in sound for film? Well, it's interesting. I actually started off in film. I was an art assistant on a film that George Lucas produced called Twice Upon a Time uh, that was directed by John Cordy. And that's actually how I met David Fincher. Some of the first jobs that I did were doing sound either for one of for David Fincher's projects, which we did. He directed a public service announcement for pregnant women urging them not to smoke, which was you can't believe now, but you know, yeah, you know, people had to be told back then. Yeah, people had to be told don't <laughs> smoke if you're pregnant. So I, I I I started off doing that, and then I did some pieces for John Cordy, which um, were for Sesame Street. So I did actually start my work in film uh, and commercials but and that's actually really how i learned so much was getting into commercial work and that is i feel a great way to learn about sound and production and workflow signal flow <laughs> um deadlines not to mention of course pleasing clients working with clients and trying to make people happy in in a short amount of time and Oftentimes with commercials, you know, having to approach a, an idea that's unusual, which is what's fun about doing a commercial. I did one a few years ago that was uh, called Puppy Monkey Baby. <laughs> and the idea, <laughs> I know, the, the client wanted to have these three men watching the Super Bowl and they're thirsty. And all of a sudden this creature walks in that's one third baby, one third monkey and one third puppy. And they wanted it to have a voice and a sound. So as weird and as terrifying as that may sound that was a project that i you know i had to come up with a way to create this this soundtrack to this this and similarly with all the other commercials you you know you get presented with these very strange challenges that are often daunting you know but you have to create sound for them in a short amount of time so all to say that that i learned a lot uh working on commercials many of which i collaborated uh with david fincher so um, even though the, the IMDB page does like a jump, there's a lot of other work that's in there that probably isn't, that isn't listed that demonstrates that. So speaking of uh, Fincher, yeah. uh, your new movie, Mank, 
I think the only way to start talking about it is to discuss the patina, as I've heard it mentioned, on the soundtrack. Okay. I guess maybe even how it even came to be. Before how you did it, where did the germ of the idea come from? Sure. The the patina sound for Mank really came from just the idea of the movie itself from David and the screenplay that David's father, Jack Fincher, wrote. And um, he originally, when David Fincher originally wanted to make Mank, he was going to film it on celluloid because back in the late 90s, that was all that was available. Digital hadn't really been invented at that point. So his intention was always to have a, a film that was shot on celluloid, but also black and white. And he wanted the film to be of the, the same era. David Fincher's vision focused more acutely on what it was he wanted. Um, he realized that he wanted it to embrace certain types of aesthetics. Obviously, the, the black and white photography a certain style of uh, uh, costume design and production design, uh, lighting. He wanted all of those elements, the, the crafts, uh, to sort of be of that period. And because of his how much of a fan that he was of Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. And in fact, he, he said to me on numerous occasions when we were talking about the sound, he, he said, you know, I really want this to feel as if it's living on a shelf or in an archive right next to Citizen Kane itself. Like it's, it happened to be made during the same time period or, or it, it, it was created of that time period. Um, and so with that idea, you know, came, of course, well, how do we do that? And what, it, what is that, more importantly? Um, what is that sound? And from there, we slowly developed our, our concept of what the patina was. And in fact... Uh, we didn't even call it, we, we kind of, we came up with the, the name Patina sort of mid-journey as we were experimenting and David smartly wanted to hear what it was going to sound like before we finished the mix. Um, he wanted to hear it even, actually even before we started mixing, which you can imagine is, is a very reasonable request. One of the first things that he's mentioned was that he wanted it to feel mono, and he wanted it to feel old. He he wanted the fidelity to sound somewhat limited, in the similar way that all those films like Citizen Kane sounded. Interestingly enough, however, um, you know when you listen and see Citizen Kane, it is beautifully photographed, and and the mix is great. Bernard Herrmann's music is phenomenal. That sort of created another level of thought process, which was, we don't want this to sound bad or terrible. We want it to sound as good as we can make it, but then process that as good as we can make it sound through what would have been the best tools available of the time period. And that was a very interesting sort of realization, because your first instinct is to, oh, let's just take all the lows out, take all the highs out, and uh, make it sound lousy, and boom, we're done. And then our first thoughts were like, oh, this will be easy. Making something sound good is difficult. Making something sound lousy is easy, right? That's because we all start off with lousy sound, right? So, <laughs> but nothing further could have been from the truth once we started getting into it and unraveling this, the and exploring the, 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 the world that this the soundtrack was asking us to create. 
an EQ curve was put on it, though, right? Yes. Yeah. And did you put the same EQ curve on dialogue and sound as you did on a music? Different EQ curves. So the process was we first had to figure out what it was that we were trying to make. And in fact, it goes back to when David Fincher was filming and shooting, and he wanted to have his dailies sound patinaed. Drew Coonan, who has worked with Fincher and we've done, has done many of Fincher's uh, production recordings along with Michael Primer, the boom operator. They were on Zodiac. So they, they know what it's like to work with David and how many multiple microphones David requires on set with the various actors. So when I was speaking with Drew, it was very clear to us that we needed to record this as best quality as possible and not burn in or bake in uh, a sound that we couldn't have further undoing or more fidelity or more more uh, bits, <laughs> more resolution. So, but David was like, "Well, isn't there a way that we can at least create the guide track with this sound?" And, and we, you know, we we discussed it. We thought, "Okay, well, let's always, you know, when a filmmaker is asking for something, it's because it's very important to to the filmmaker." And of, of course, we wanted to make that happen, but we realized that we couldn't do it. Within the Cantar, Drew uses the, the French recorder to the Cantar, which is this beautiful sounding uh, digital recorder. You know, we thought, okay, well, what if we sum all the other channels and then go through an EQ and then re-record it back to Drew's mic channel, his mix track, and that just didn't seem like a good way of doing it. So instead, we started to explore um, what if we were to somehow bolt onto the back end of the picture editor's Adobe Premiere workstation some sort of way of creating the sound. And so Kirk Baxter, who's David's picture editor, was totally open to doing that. And he was happy to, he, he'd actually prefer to have it be that done that way so that if he needed to turn this EQ curve off, he could, but somehow we, we could have it on there so that when David walked in or if they were posting cuts for David, it would sort of have the sound in. And so to that, uh, we started listening to old films and, and, and recorded them and started looking at their spectrum limitations of frequency and what was going on. And so we looked at um, Citizen Kane and noticed the EQ curve that it had, which you can imagine has very little low frequencies. And really, sound doesn't start going up to like 150, 200 to 500 hertz. And then we go all the way up to like 5K and it starts dropping off. So very limited with sort of strange little, you know. Spikes. Spikes, exactly. Perfect word. Spikes of little mid-range spikes. And so we kind of reversed engineered, we took like an average of what Kane's track looked like and then repainted an inverse curve and then, which was a plugin, we were using a fab filter, which is very handy because you can create many different nodes and then dial them down and up and so forth and even create, manipulate the dynamics of those, as you know. So that was sort of the kickoff of the, pro of the project. Ultimately, however, what ended up happening was it was a little too simplistic of an idea to just simply put an EQ curve on. It was also maybe too much, you know what I mean? It was it was too, there wasn't enough high frequency, there wasn't enough low, it, there was something broken about it. We realized that we had to kind of tailor each performance in a way, and we realized that what was suffering was intelligibility, and namely the intelligibility of Gary uh, Oldman's character, Mank. All the other characters that are in the film speak loudly and project 
and they're very clear. So even through the filter, you can understand them and make out what they're saying. But when it came to Gary's character, he was mumbling, slurring his words, softly performed, and, and also quiet through a filter. And it becomes really difficult to understand, if you, as you can imagine. And there was a bit of panic <laughs> from everybody because people, you know, David would bring, Fincher would bring people by the cutting room and, you know, and as Kirk's was working and they'd say, hey, what do you think of this? And people go, it's, I don't understand what they're saying. And so that co- was a cause for alarm. <laughs> yes, it would be, yeah. You know, and so you can imagine, and that, but what was good about that, it made us realize that we couldn't work this way. We had to come up with a different way of working mix the film as to the best quality that we could and completely divorce ourselves from the patina until at a later point in time when we knew actually what we had. And then that kind of gave us the freedom to go, okay, let's make the dialogue as, sounding as good as possible and make each character read as best as possible. And if we have a technical problem, we'll loop that line. And that was very helpful. And it was a struggle for David, because he, he knew that we had to work that way, but, you know, he wanted to get into the zone of the patina early on, and so uh, he was frustrated with that, but he understood, you know, it was, you know, I, we kind of came up with a visual analogy, which is, like, which is, you know, look, you and Eric Messerschmidt aren't shooting at some reduced resolution, are you? No, you're shooting at the highest resolution with the most amount of data. And then later you will patina the picture and distress that, but you will have the latitude of that data. And David, of course, you know, he, he agreed, but that ended up extending our, our deadline because then we realized that, that we needed to put in more time at the back end to then do the patina effect. In addition to the EQ, there is a, a reverb a very tight reverb on... Yeah, there is. Is it the entire film? We did. I, I want to just do a little role-playing with you, okay? Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to be David, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you that, uh, hey, Ren, what do you think about putting a, a reverb over the entire picture? Well, how's that sound to you? You know, there's two responses. There's the <laughs> verbal response that's audible, which is, let's do it. But then there's the interior, internal monologue, which is, oh, my God, this is frightening. <laughs> So, which of course I didn't say out loud, <laughs> you know, because everything in our being, I will say to myself, although I, you know, speaking for uh, David Parker, who was mixing with me and also Nathan, Nance, there were three of us mixing. When we would, the three of us would speak, it, would, it was like therapy, you know, what's he going to do? This is crazy. <laughs> I can't believe we're going to do this, you know. And, but what was great about it was that it was almost like when you were just doing role playing because then Dave Parker would go, Ran, I don't know, that's a bad idea. It's got some weird ideas. It's very confusing. No, and, I, and then I would realize that he was pushing back and then I would then role play as if I was on David's side. So then I, would, I thought, wait a minute, this is a concept we need to figure out how to do it. You know, Despite our instincts telling us otherwise, don't do it. We need to approach this in a way that's, this is the assignment. We're going to go as far as we can and have a good attitude about it, <laughs> you know, and we're going to go for it. And um, to back up just a little bit, normally when you when all of us work, you know, it's sort of like we're, we're coalescing our mix down to the final. And as we get towards the final, of course, as, as everyone who's listening uh, knows, 
you know, we create stems and we create as m the fewest number of stems as possible. The number of stems has grown recently due to delivery requirements of f for foreign markets. But usually you have a dialogue stem, sound effects stem, a music stem, and those have grown into a few more elements. Sometimes we separate dialogue into dialogue and loop group, and then sometimes we separate effects into hard effects and ambience. And sometimes we'll even separate music into two stems, source and score, or if they're different composers, etc. But in this particular instance, we ended up creating a, a much wider number of stems. I think we went out to about eight or nine stems and separated Foley footsteps from Foley props, from ambience to effects to loop group to two channels of music and more dialogue. And the reason was that as we were doing our tests, and we got up to about, I think, um, 26 tests for the patina, one thing was very interesting, Tim, was that we started to notice that some actors sounded great through the patina and others didn't. And it kind of scared us again because we were all it was like, oh, no, this is going back to the problem we had before in the offline with bolting on the, the EQ curve. And we realized that there were certain characters, and again, Mank, but a few others, like the character who plays um, L.B. Mayer. And he's a very clear, his voice is very clear. And yet, for some reason, he would hit our uh, patina chain in a weird way that would overmodulate. And we were, we were, by the way, we were adding distortion. We added noise. Uh, we added a bunch of different things in addition to just the EQ curve. To answer your question from earlier, yes, we each food group, it was music, we allowed for more high frequencies and a little bit more low frequencies. Sound effects were a little different. Dialogue, different from those as well. So each group kind of had a similar curve, but we, we tweaked them slightly. Slightly different size boxes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So in the end, the process was once we created all the stems, then we went to the patina process. And then that took a whole pass. And what, one of the scary things <laughs> that I'm sure people who are listening, they can imagine where this is going, is that you know when, you, when you're working with a filmmaker, they're there to make their film as best as it can be, but they also want to constantly tweak and change and make adjustments, which is what I think makes David Fincher such a strong filmmaker, is that he really cares about character and he cares about how a voice sounds and their performance. And so we got into pitch shifting words. And, you know, for example, Orson Welles' character, there was some concern from Tom Burke's had saw the, like a, a rough mix and uh, said to David, look, I, I'm happy with my performance, but maybe I, I should, can I re-ADR some of it? Would you let me? And David, of course, was a very, very kind filmmaker, of course, allowed that. And Although David was was happy with um, the performance. And what was interesting, though, is that then we sort of said, oh, well, most of the production is, we'll go with production, David, to say, but, like, but right there in the ADR, it's good. Let's, can we put that one word in there? And then that opened up a whole Pandora's box of, well, what if we start pitch, pitch shifting this character? Because, you know, Orson Welles, he was only 24 years old, 26 um, at the time. So, you know, he's a young man, but he sort of had that, you know, he's got that deep voice and... We wanted to kind of give it, give his character that command. And of course, the actor wanted to have that command. And David, of course, wanted to explore the tone. So we, we started pitching down words and all to say that a lot of very fine detailed work was going into everything. And we wanted to make sure all that pitching happened when we had the full resolution files, not when we had everything baked in and then 
were patinaing. So once we got done making all those decisions and started patinaing, we realized, oh no, now we've got another problem. Now we've got to split off this character and distort him less or Amanda Seyfried's character. She sounds too bright. So we have to EQ her a little darker now. So little adjustments along the way. And then at, once we did that, then we rec- then we created a, a basically a, we call it our mono master. In truth, it's an LCR master. And that we then re-recorded and and got the theater reverb sound. You call it an LCR master. Is it mono but going to LCR? In truth, we decided to spread the music into the left and right uh, channels. But the majority of the mix outside of music is indeed coming out of the center channel. There are moments, however, where... uh, Nathan would look at me and he'd go, I think I'm going to just cheat. I'm going to cheat and spread this out in the LR just for drama. I'm like, yeah, we should do that. So there are moments where we cheat, you know, but I think the overall feeling is that, um, yes, it's monaural, but in truth, it's stereo music and mono everything else. So we created an LCR. When we arrived at that, it felt great because we, we finally had this patinaed sound. But that was then what we called stage two. And then the last stage, which was when David said, hey, what if we go to some old movie theater and play this the whole mix back in an old movie theater and then re-record that echo that the old movie theater is making onto another set of tracks and then add that echo back onto <laughs> the dry mix. And, um, you know, it was interesting because there was a moment where um, after David pitched this idea, I don't know if it was a pitch or it was a request or, or a demand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one it was. Um, he realized even to you know himself, he was like, wow, this is a lot of work to go to some theater and set up to play this whole film back and re-record it with microphones, especially during COVID. But, you know, he looked at me at one point and goes, I mean, we could do it digitally too, right? And I said... Yeah, of course we could do it digitally. Technology's evolved, and you know we've gone from the 480 lexicon sound into impulse responses, and we have this, as everyone is listening knows, uh, how wonderful addition of tools in our tool chest that we have. And David, as we've worked through all the different films, you know, I, whenever impulse, whenever that first came about, you know, I would call him up and hey, guess what? There's this great new technology, and he tracks on everything, you know, and he remembered. So. But there was still this part of him that was excited about doing it the hard way. And at that point, you know, we kind of decided that going over to the Oakland Grand Lake Theater was just not a good idea. I mean, we've been in that theater for playbacks of of movies, and um, it's noisy. It's on a busy street in Oakland. There's people there slamming doors and trucks going by. And, you know, it's you can imagine it would it would be difficult. So, but then we realized that um, the best room to record it in was uh, the scoring stage at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. It's this beautiful room. It's used to, it has hardwood floors. I think the ceilings are, I think, 50 or 60 feet tall. It's a massive room. The walls are hard surfaced and the ceilings are hard surfaced, but the walls and the ceilings have sliding baffles so you can change the reverb time from I think 3.2 seconds it might be either 3.2 or 3.6 I can't remember but it's roughly 3 to 4 second reverb time so it's a beautiful 
you know, decay and it's bright and very pretty. And as luck would have it, you know, there's a massive movie screen on the far wall to project the film so when the orchestra's there, they can watch it. And behind that screen are speakers. So we thought, oh my God, we're so lucky. Let's just play the movie, our mix, in this room. And so uh, we did. And uh, we set up uh, six pairs of microphones. And the first pair was close to the screen. And then we slowly moved the microphone array back to the rear of the, of the theater. And we spaced them. Dan, Dan Thompson set up all the microphones and did a beautiful job kind of working with Jonathan Stevens, kind of curating which mics that we were going to use. They asked, you know, for a kind of what, what, what would you like? And we thought, well, some B&K 4011s, some... Some Royers, let's uh, you know ribbon mics. Let's get the the Neumann U47s. Let's get the Coles. So we had you know various mics, and then they sort of took it upon themselves and exercised their creativity to space them out in a way that was very beautifully done. And then, and there was this great moment where we went into the scoring stage and we played it in the scoring stage, and you hear the film in this room echoing. You're like oh my goodness, this feels like we're in an old, now it's out of control. And, and, it, and it really rem, it re, really reminded all of us of that feeling of, you know, when you go to Man's Chinese Theater or an old theater. I don't know if you've had that experience where you, you just can't believe, you can't believe how echoey this place is, but you kind of, there's nothing you can do about it. And you, you just go, well, this is what it is. You know, I'm going to, it was wonderful to finally get to that place and we sat in the actual room for, I don't know, 10 minutes. And after that, we were like, okay, let's go into the control room where we could really start blending. And and um, and in the end, we came up with a blend of different mics. And uh, the Easter egg part of this is that if you stream the 5.1 mix of Mank, this reverb that's from the scoring stage is discreetly in the rear surround. So... It's a fun little Easter egg fact. So if you want to hear just the reverb, mute the LCR, or if you want to hear the film without any of the scoring stage reverb, mute the surrounds and you can hear it without it. So it's, you know, for the sound geeks who are listening. They can... <laughs> well, that's everyone who's listening. So Okay, um... good. <laughs> that's all of us. <laughs> Pops, this is Harmon Mankiewicz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankiewicz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. Why? No need to be humble, Mr. Mankiewicz. Picture's the talk of the future. They're going to need people who honor words, give them voice. There's a golden age coming when all the world will be a stage. And you, perhaps, they're Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have thought you'd be that keenly interested in the honoring of words. <laughs> What's so funny? I'm just surprised that a vaunted muckraker like yourself sees Hollywood's future as such a shiny penny. Back to one. So did you play back the full mix or did you play it back in all the stems individually? Very good question. Um, we talked about playing the, the stems back in, individually, but we didn't want to have to be in a situation where David wanted to make changes. So every single step of the way, what I wanted to make sure is that, okay, this is now the patina mix. And we play that back. Do you want to change anything? We play back, adjust this. Okay, adjust that, adjust this, adjust that. And then we bake that down. And then once we were there, then we played, we joined all the reels into a long play. Head pop and a tail pop. 
We tested, you know, we made sure that we liked the sound of the, the reverb. <laughs> and then we played the whole film in that room. And we just sat in the control room just going, wow, this is fantastic, you know. And of course, we were playing. We were playing the whole time. We were like, you know, auditioning different mics and whatnot. But um, So then you took those recordings back into your original mixer? Yes. Yeah, and we, we had all 12 channels. And then we went back into the mix room then had our dry mix and then set about auditioning. And then really, you know, based on kind of our initial notes from the scoring stage, then it was just a matter of deciding the blend. And that actually took a t- uh, took a, some time because, you know, when you, as I think everyone's listening knows, you know, when you get into the world of reverb, it's it can be a confusing place, you know, because you hear it, then you stop hearing it. Yeah, it depends how loud the backgrounds are, how, what else is going on, what the music's happening. Because when all those disappear, suddenly that reverb is just right way out in the open. Yes, and so one of the learning aha moments that we had was that once we arrived at the microphones, we realized we couldn't just lay in the same reverb. In other words, we could have just said, okay, here are the microphones, they're in the rear surrounds, they're going to be at minus 22 or what have you. And now we're going to make our print master. But we realized that when we were laying that down and that there were moments that were just, it didn't work. And there were moments where it wasn't loud enough. There were moments where it was too loud. So I ended up mixing the level of that reverb to taste depending on what scenes we were. So for example, in the beginning of the film, we wanted to establish, okay, we need to tell the audience you are in a theater, you know, so we kind of played it more pronounced. But then later, once we establish it, we, okay, let's now, let's now pull it back a little bit. And then in busy sequences, like when Charlie Lederer goes to, uh, gets the telegram and he goes to see and meet Mank for the first time, there's this incredible music that Trenton Atticus created, which has a lot of motion and sound and there's a lot of sound effects happening. So in those moments, we would pull it back. Or when the, people are talking in the bathroom, Way too reverberant already. Get rid of it. Or when we're at Hearst Castle, we had done all of this very detailed work in terms of reverb perspective. So if we're close to uh, William Randolph Hearst, it would be less reverberant, but for further away, would add reverb. So if we added this general reverb on, it would destroy all those subtle nuances. So in those scenes, sometimes we would turn it nearly off. Uh, so that <laughs> that that was a little crazy, crazy moment of realization that we had to do it to taste. It's interesting that you're now an expert on how to do something that I'm not sure is ever going to be done again. <laughs> it will never be done again, I don't think. <laughs> you're the yeah. world's foremost authority on something that no one's going to do again. How not to do something. <laughs> right. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier about having all these stems for uh, international mixes. Did you include any instructions on how to patina it for, you know, the Czechoslovakian version of it? I guess Czechoslovakian is the worst example because that country doesn't exist anymore. Uh, for- <laughs> the Spanish version, the German version. Yes, that's a really good question. I'm really glad that you're asking that question because, you know, oftentimes we never cover the work that needs to go into all the 34 languages that we will dub the film into ultimately. And so, yes, it was a very... Um, very tricky situation because we were mixing the film in a hybrid setup. So it was partly in the box. So Nathan was mixing, Nathan Nance was mixing the sound effects and the ambiences 
in Pro Tools in the box. I was mixing the music on the DFC console traditionally. Dave Parker was mixing dialogue and Foley traditionally. And what's great about all of that is, of course, everybody is, is comfortable with their tools. But the downside of not mixing in the box is that we can't, sh you know, all the presets, for example, for dialogue that Dave Parker had built into his William Randolph's Echo and all of the different sounds that, that have been uh, made for the dialogue in the exteriors and so forth, were all basically had to be written down by hand as we normally do. And, and there were largely 480 and TC reverbs. So those notes went to um, were were written down and very carefully notated. We knew that we had to create an M and E, and we knew that that reverb was going to be added, but we didn't know at what stage were we going to were we going to run the whole thumb down again, minus dialogue, and do an M and E mix, or are we going to allow the M and E team to do all of that? And in the and that was a big discussion. Uh, because there are pros and cons to both, you know? But in the end, we thought, well, what would you like to receive? Like as the M&E team, you mean? Yes, as the M&E team. And we realized that it would be better for them to be able to add the reverb to everything themselves. Naturally, of course, they weren't going to be able to um, use the scoring stage, right? Because that was a one-off for the English version only. So we came up with impulse responses that were very close to what we created in the scoring stage. And so those were delivered, adjusting the pre-delay of what we ended up with our mics. And so that was a very long process of kind of making a proxy file, like, okay, well, here's the real reverb, which, and we gave that to the m &E team as a separate element for reference. How do you translate that, yeah. Yeah, but really they need their, like, hey, well, we need a preset, you know, can we get a preset? So we created presets for them. I made a mistake. I was mixing the reverb, as I mentioned a moment ago, to taste per scene. So sometimes it would be loud, sometimes it would be soft. But I unfortunately made the mistake of mixing that on the DFC, which is great for the, the English version, but how do we translate the volume rights? And so I, I was kicking myself because I was like, oh, I should have mixed this in the box because then we could give those the automation to the foreign team. But as luck would have it, um, Steve Morris, who's the head engineer at Skywalker, I felt so embarrassed because <laughs> I mixed the whole film and I, I went to him after the fact and I said, Steve, is there any way that we can take the volume automation from the DFC and somehow transcode it into Pro Tools volume automation? He goes, yes. And they figured out a way. And I have this, I should send it to you. It's like this, it's like only someone like you or the listeners would appreciate it. It's just like this crazy, it's the entire film of every volume ride it throughout the reverb. But what was wonderful is we created a, a file. So the file was like, here's the crazy reverb, patina reverb. It had the plugins, and it had the volume automation and long play. And so we delivered that. And that felt great that we actually could give that to the foreign team. Yeah, well, we can post that up at tonebenderspodcast.com. Listeners can go to this episode's page and see the image of this uh, wild volume ride that you did for the reverb. Yeah, let's do it. Well... I had a bunch of other questions that didn't relate to the patina, but we're out of time. So thank you very much for talking to us today. Uh, I was going to ask you a couple soul questions too, but congratulations on that as well. It was beautiful. I really enjoyed that film and obviously Mank I enjoyed too. So congratulations oh, on all I've, of that. Thank you so much, Tim. Wow, 
wow, we really went down a rabbit hole with Ren in that talk. Make sure you head to ToneBendersPodcast.com to check out that patina volume ride graph. It's pretty cool looking. We'll definitely have to have Ren back to talk about all his other amazing films over his career in the future. But before I let you go, I have a really great extra feature for you today. You may have noticed recently that we've started running little ads at the end of Tonebenders episodes for other similar podcasts. We have joined in with some other great shows to form the Audio Podcast Alliance. You can go to the audiopodcastalliance.org to see all the other shows involved. Today, instead of running a little ad, we're going to run a five-minute clip from one of those other podcasts because it's just a truly amazing story. You're about to hear from Steve Sada, a location sound mixer and boom op working out of the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. He was a guest on the Location Sound podcast a few years ago in their episode number 33. Steve told a story about working with Joe Biden back when he was America's vice president in the Obama administration. Given that Biden's obviously been in the news a lot lately, I thought it would be an ideal time to run this story. You'll get a laugh and you'll shake your head a bunch when you hear it. It's an amazing story. I'll post a link to the entire episode in the show notes for this episode at ToneMendersPodcast.com. So here it is, without further ado, Steve Sada telling a story from the Location Sound podcast. One of the best moments I've ever had on set was really it took over the course of two years. And over the course of two years, I worked with Joe Biden three different times while he was vice president. You know, the first time was on Parks and Rec season five. He came to DC and did a couple days day playing and on season five. And I was the boom operator on Parks for season five in DC. And, you know, I got to know him there, you know, true politician and great guy and mic'd him up, super nice. And then a couple months later, we're doing this short film for the White House Correspondence Center intro video with Julia Lee-Dreyfus and Joe Biden. So we spent a week with Joe, which was really interesting. But, you know, first day I show up on set, Julia's happy to see me. She didn't know I was going to be there and I knew her from Veep. So she's like, oh, that's so great. Let me come introduce you to Joe. And she brings me to Joe and Joe's like, hey, Steve, what's going on? Like immediately remembered who I was, remembered my story, like just the brief five minutes we talked when I was miking him, was talking and Julie's just like, what the hell? Like, okay, cool. Like, you know, Joe, that's really weird. And we had a great week, you know, and the last day of shooting, I will never, ever forget this moment. So the last day of shooting, we're at the Naval Observatory where the vice president lives. And there's a big steel gate that leads to the half circle driveway of the, of the observatory. And we're shooting our last scene there. It's at night. It's Joe in this bright yellow Corvette convertible driving Julia to the gate to, and she jumps the gate essentially. So we're about to do our last setup and you know, Joe is in the car and he puts it in reverse and goes to his number ones. And he just says, you know, Hey guys, just letting you know, I only have time for one more take because Marine two is going to land right there in front of the house and pick me up in about five minutes. And we're like, okay, you know, we all laugh like, uh, okay. Lo and behold, you know, five minutes later, here comes Marine 2. So Marine 2 comes and lands right on set. And we, we finish the scene and Joe gets out of the car, hugs Julia, hugs the director, producers, whatever, and says, all right, thanks guys. It's loud. You know, the helicopter's right there. The rudders are going, it's windy. And he starts running to the helicopter. So dumb me, I'm walking back to my mixer and my mixer's like, did you get the wire? And I immediately panicked. I'm like, oh my God. So without even thinking, I just turned and started sprinting as fast as I could to the vice president of the United States while he's got his back to me and trying to get to Marine two. So I'm running full speed at him, yelling, screaming his name, Joe, 
wait. And all of us, I look up, his secret service guys are all communicating on their walkies. Like I can only imagine what they're saying, but they're all like moving towards me slowly, you know, moving towards me. And we're about to get under the rudder. So I'm like bending down and Joe's bent down already. And I guess Joe caught a glimpse of one of his secret service agents that looked panicked or like looked at that were looking a different way. So he turned and looked at me and he immediately associated like, Oh man, I'm so, and he immediately realized that he had his mic on still. So he's like, Oh, he throws his hands up. He's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And we, so here's me and Joe Biden under the, under the propellers of Marine two screaming at each other, trying to talk to each other under the noise and the wind. And I'm trying to pull this mic off of them. And the whole time we're just laughing and he's just like, man, they almost got you. <laughs> it's like they were getting ready. I'm like, Oh God, I don't know what to do. So I'm pulling the mic off of him and he shakes my hand and pulls me in for a, you know, one handed hug. And he's like, thanks so much, man. It has been a great week. Turns around, gets into Marine two and waves off everybody. So I'm there like ducking down, waiting for the chopper to take off. It takes off and I turn around and the entire crew is just dying. They're all of their jaws are dropped because they're like, you have no idea what we all thought was about to happen. Like you were sprinting so fast to the vice president. His agents were so ready to kill you in that moment. And I was like, I had no idea. I was just like, oh, okay. And they were just like, you, oh my God. And the mix, I brought it, came back to the mixer and he's just like, you know, you could have left it on him. Like, it's okay. Like, no, I had to go get it. And everyone was just like, damn, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I'll never forget it. The next year, Parks and Rec season seven came and we did the same thing. We shot at the observatory with Joe and we got Amy Poehler, Adam Scott, uh, Aubrey Plaza. And he comes down the steps with his wife, Jill. And he you know, says hi to everybody. And first time meeting a couple of the actors and meets the first AD uh, and says, oh, you know, it's time to get you mic'd up. And you know, this is Steve. And he turns and sees me and he's like, you gotta be kidding me. And he throws his arms around me and gives me a huge hug in front of everyone, in front of Amy Poehler, everybody, all the cast, all the crew. Gives me a huge hug. He's like, how are you? It's been so long. I haven't seen you since that time. We almost shot you. I was like, what? And I'm looking over Joe's shoulder while I'm hugging him. And I see Amy Poehler and Adam Scott and all that. They're like, what? Like, who is this guy? You know, I mic'd him up and we were just catching up and talking. And he's like, I still tell that story all. And he's, he said that he still tells that story to all of his friends and his family about the time the sound guy ran after him and almost died trying to get a microphone. It was the craziest experience, but you know, God, I love Joe. He was great. He's, he's amazing. Such a class act guy. And not to mention just a really good actor too. <laughs> so yeah, it was just an amazing, amazing experience with the vice president. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 